uh, we're going to talk about mourning. And I'm not talking about like M-O-R, but M-O-U-R. Um, and, you know, we spent... I don't know, the better part of a few months talking about emotional health and what does it look like to be a, an emotionally healthy church and uh, aspects of the place of our pain being the place of healing. And I was like, okay, yeah, I wish that we could just have the residue of those conversations linger today. Um, but I read this little piece at the close of the year in the New York Times. It was uh, talking about how people are tired of mourning, that we're ready to just be done mourning so we can just get on living our life. And what was funny is at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I remember reading another piece that was going around, and I think it was in like the Harvard Business Review or something like that, but like what you feel is grief. And it seems like this has been the bookend of the season. And in fact, I had a conversation with a, a, a person who they're no longer going to gate when they said, we're just tired of being sad. <laughs> like we want to go somewhere where we don't feel sad. And I'm like, I feel you. Like, I, there we go. And so this is, this is where we're in. So if you feel uncomfortable, I am so glad I do too. And uh, I'm, this is where we're going into morning. And I know this is kind of an odd way to start a sermon. And maybe you're like, wow, let's see where this goes. I'm interested in seeing where it goes as well. But this is, this is what happens when we open up the scriptures is that the scriptures actually lead us to a picture of life and not an idealized version of life like what you see when you scroll through um, Instagram or the social medias, things with filters, but real life. In the midst of life, there are moments of mourning. And, and coming in really strong this morning is this reality. And this is actually good news for us because we, we have a... a an opportunity in the midst of that to translate that grief, to translate that mourning. We actually get to participate with it. It's not just something that happens to us passively, although it can at times feel like these tidal waves of reality are just washing over us, but in community and with one another, more specifically with the living God, the Holy Spirit, we can participate with this. We can translate that grief and, and yet, depending on how we translate, it affects our life. There are these common ways that people do this, and Tim Keller in this work on grief outlines some of these. And Keller's more of a, a practitioner than a quote-unquote expert, uh, but he, he offers these observations. The first way that you can translate your grief is uh, to be a good moralist. And a moralist would simply say that suffering is the cause of wrongdoing. Therefore, our response to the morning is to be good. It's like we, we, we do good and then the resolution will be bliss. You can think about this like karma. Like you put some good out there, it's going to come back around. But if you put some negative stuff out there, it's also going to come back around. We could also view mourning or translate mourning from a kind of self-transcendent perspective. This is a really reduced way of talking about Buddhism. And this is where suffering is kind of an illusion in a sense. And I'm, I'm not an expert on Buddhism or like world religion. So if I'm wrong here, um, you can talk to me after and I'll send a message to everyone about what the proper perspective is on this. But suffering is kind of this illusion. And our response to suffering is detachment through like the, the fourfold path or uh, these to get toward enlightenment. You could also opt for just a fatalistic worldview, which feels really popular, uh, where the cause of suffering is just destiny. This is just the way it is. And so your response is just to endure the suffering, just to kind of, well, you gotta get through it. So there it is. 
This is, and there's the classic uh, dualistic yin-yang perspective. You can embrace the dualistic worldview where this suffering is actually cosmic and there's, there's both like light and goodness and faithfulness, but there's also this dark energy, this dark animating energy. And uh, lastly, you could, you could really just think about, this is probably the most pervasive is the secular worldview where suffering is kind of an accident because we're all just a happy accident. And so you have to enjoy everything as much as you can while you have the time because after that, well, um, that, that's all there is. You're just, I guess, worm food. So our response is to kind of avoid suffering because on the balance sheet of life, it's a thing to be avoided at all costs. And at that point, if you avoid the suffering, then you minimize the discomfort, you maximize the joy. Are we, are we tracking here with the different ways we can translate suffering? We can translate mourning? See, the, the reality, in, in, I think, in front of us is that we will all suffer, which is, of course, what you came to hear this morning. And I, uh, just Tim Keller continues this on. He's, he, uh, he really helps us out here. No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful in our career, something will inevitably ruin it. No amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. And then he sums it up with these words, life is tragic. So welcome to Gateway, (laughs) where life is tragic. Um, But with this in mind, if you have your Bibles, I just invite you to flip or tap your way on over to the gospel according to Matthew. Because... um, well, one, we're in a little series in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in this kind of front end, this preamble to Jesus's kind of Magna Carta, if you will, um, called the Beatitudes. And this is what we read today. This is the word of the Lord here, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I just want us to hold those words. In fact, say those words aloud with me, if you will, starting with blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's do it one more time like we mean it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So just recall the scene with me. Um, If you're haven't been in the gospel according to Matthew in a while, or this is maybe the first time you've been there, Uh, Jesus has come on the scene with these uh, dramatic words to change your mind, Uh, or or in in Jesus is the language you encounter in the Bible, repent, which is all, all of our favorite words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your mind about the way reality is. Turn around. And then Jesus kind of uh, pairs this up. He makes this claim and he backs up this claim with these signs of power. We see that there's healings and uh, those who are demonized are brought back into wellness and order. You see the paralyzed and the epileptic. You see all of these various illnesses lingering around Jesus. And Jesus in his presence is just bringing restoration and wholeness. And, And when you do these types of things, as you can imagine, you build a little bit of a following. And so people from all of the known region, all around the Mediterranean are coming and they're flocking to Jesus to receive this type of restoration. 
And then we turn in Matthew 5, and, and you see that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and he began to teach them, saying, and then he starts announcing these blessings. But what's really interesting about Jesus is, uh, as is so often the case, is that Jesus will say some things, but there's some stuff just beneath the surface. And it's not as though Jesus is hiding things from us. It's just he's speaking in a different way, in a different time, and in a different place. And so Jesus is doing uh, this form of Jewish teaching called stringing pearls. This is really fascinating, uh, at least to uh, Bible nerds. Um, so in, with Jesus, uh, Jesus would use a, a bit or a phrase of scripture. And when Jesus put this part or this bit or this phrase of the Hebrew Bible in front of his audience, the whole thing would be in view. And the Beatitudes are really this collection of pearls that Jesus is stringing together. And it's not as though Jesus um, like forgets the line of something from the Torah or something like that, where so often I'll be trying to recall a Bible verse and I'll, because it'll be fitting for a moment and I'll be like, well, it goes, what is it, uh, ooh, something about anxiety and casting, because he cares, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and so we say this, and we hope that the people that we're talking to about, you know, like being able to cast our anxieties on Jesus because he cares for us, he invites us to do this, like we hope we know that they know the context. Jesus isn't forgetting the scriptures, this is an intentional move. And so when we hear Jesus say, Blessed are those who mourn. He's setting up this moment. It's not this paradox of like, happy are the sad, now figure it out. No, Jesus is inviting them to see this big, beautiful tapestry of the Hebrew Bible, and he's doing it by saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, because Jesus is tapping into this collective longing for restoration. And so, if blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, is the part, the, the appropriate question we would do well to ask is, what is the whole? And, and for that, I just invite you to flip or tap your way on over to Isaiah. Isaiah is what uh, we would know as the major prophets, one of the major prophets. So go with me to Isaiah 61. Isaiah comes on the scene. In his time in history, he's warning the people of Israel that their, their posture of their whole lives is actually oriented away from the God to whom they um, belong in some sense. The, the, the namesake of their people, Israel, is to wrestle with God, but they've forsaken this God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, and so these prophets would come along to remind the people to turn back. Isaiah is that type of person and here near the end of this work, we read this. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. And hold on to that. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, 
and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, for they will display his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Did you catch it? Right, right at the end of verse two, there's this call out to our, like what we just heard in the Beatitudes. Right there at the end of verse two, we see our Beatitude kind of tucked into this poetic movement. And, and if you didn't hear it, hear it now. Comfort for all who mourn, provision for those who grieve. It goes on to describe a crown of beauty instead of ashes, this oil of joy instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. It's this entire reversal. In other words, the mourners of Zion, that it's this holy city, the ones who listen and receive the good news, they will be the ones who are not only made whole, but then they participate in wholeness. They're made whole and then they're wholeness makers. This is now their renewed identity. And I know that that grammar like made whole and whole makers can feel a bit uncomfortable. And so just to hear it again from the prophet and this poet here at, the, at verse four, hear this again. The mourners, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. So rebuilding the restoration and renewal. Could you, could you imagine being in a place, in a time where you were literally dislocated from your home. Maybe there were not just strained relationships, but lost relationships, a place where it felt like there was more chaos than order. Hearing words like these, could you imagine such a time of chaos? Hearing that there's a hope for rebuilding and restoration and renewal and that you'll be a participant in that renewal. See, this restoration, it is so pervasive that it extends through them and then to the nations. There's this beautiful thing that actually moves through these mourners. If you read on in the poem, you see that the mourners will then be called priests of God. A, a priest is one who represents a people to God and God to a people. A priest is not an uncommon profession or vocation, but in the people of Israel, a priest was significant. It was vital in, the, in, in their world, in the way they lived in the world in relationship to God and one another. The priest was vital. Now, it won't just be that there will be a group of priests, but all of the people will be priests mediating the presence of God, and it'll be a healing balm to the nations. If you read on a little bit further in that poem, you'll see that in the place of their shame and, and disgrace, God promises joy. And it's not just joy, like a flickering of joy, but you'll see just below that in Isaiah 61.10 that there's this everlasting covenant that comes. This is the strongest relational language that can be used in the scriptures, is this language of covenant. And this is what the living God promises, is that there will be a renewal, a restoration, there will be rebuilding, there will be joy, and it'll be secure in a covenant. And this is where the beatitude kind of comes to life. There's like a fresh action going on here. Um, who's announcing the blessing in Matthew 5? Not rhetorical, not a trick question. 
Yeah, who's announcing it? Jesus. We can say that with some confidence. So J Jesus is doing it. Now, who's speaking in Isaiah 61.1? Maybe a little bit more apprehension around who is that. Well, well let's see. Go, go back there again. Isaiah 61.1. Listen, listen to who this person is. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. So this person is going to have the, the personal presence of the, of the living God, the sovereign God on them because the Lord has anointed me. Now, you may not uh, go around talking about anointing or that type of language. You, maybe, maybe you've had like somebody anoint you with oil or something like that, or you've come from a charismatic background and you've been anointed with oil. Maybe, maybe not. Anointing is a distinct phrase. It's like a little hyperlink. You know, when you're going through Wikipedia and you come across a hyperlink and you want to chase the rabbit, so you click it and a whole new world opens to you. Anointing is that type of word in the scriptures because as the Hebrew Bible un unfolds, there are two offices that are wrapped up with the language of anointing. It's kings and priests. These are the ones who will be anointed. So when we see that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because this connection, because the Lord has anointed me. In, in other words, when Jesus is stringing this pearl, he's ever so subtly inserting himself into the role of this spirit-filled king priest. Like you guys, the Beatitudes, Come on, like this is amazing. See, see, what Jesus is doing here is he looks back to this hope, this nascent hope with the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah and he draws this past hope and brings it to bear on the present so that the, all of those who are hearing can resituate themselves. This past hope is drawn into the present so the people can resituate themselves because the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me to because he's anointed me. And then he goes on to say, who? I mean, this is, if you didn't, if you recognize those words, it's because you've heard them before. It's like, if there was ever a drop the mic moment in the New Testament or the Gospels, it's Jesus showing up in the synagogue. You see this in the Gospel according to Luke. He rolls up, he unrolls the, the scroll, which is also like an epic, we don't have scrolls, we have uh, tablets. Uh, he unrolls the scroll and he finds his place to that passage, and he begins saying all of these things, good news for the poor, the mourners are gonna get comforted, and then he rolls it up, hands it back to the attendant, and sits down. Just saying, it's pretty BA. So I, I, I can't make this point any more emphatic, and so that's why I'm prefacing it so much. Jesus includes the mourners. Turn to your neighbor if you would, and just say, Jesus includes the mourners. Now turn to the neighbor you didn't come with and, uh, and say, Jesus includes the mourners. Okay, so what is this mourning then? Um, I, I've really appreciated how Professor Rebecca Eklund captures this. She says this beautifully, saying, mourning is the profound sorrow that results from recognizing the loss of the true good, the image of God, and human nature. What's, what's curious about this particular beatitude is that for like 13 centuries, um, the church thought mourning in this particular case was about penitence or, or being repentant about your sin. And then along came this little thing called the Protestant Reformation. And the, 
the idea of mourning expanded a little bit, of, of maybe meaning more than just that. Maybe it was wider than that. And then you get into like the modern era and you get to somebody like the evangelist Billy Graham and he talks about five ways to mourn. Basically, the, the word is almost thin at that point. But what I want us to see here and what Eklund kind of taps into is that this mourning is this dynamic thing. And, I, and we'll get to this in a, in a moment when we talk about the Beatitudes again, not as virtues to be pursued, but there is, there's an invitation here just to explore this. What is mourning? When Jesus talks about this, when he strings this pearl, and I, I love this, Eklund just like recognizing the loss of the true good, the image of God. You see, what we see here with Jesus and stringing this pearl is that Jesus is not uncomfortable with sadness. Jesus is not uncomfortable with your grief or your desperation. Rather, these are the things that he draws near to. These are the people that Jesus draws near to. And these are the people to whom God extends through Jesus the kingdom of heaven first. It can feel a little wonky when we, when we start working our way through this and, and leaning into it and just saying, whoa, a stringing of pearls, what is this? One, because we're not first century Jews. <laughs> we're, we don't kind of live with an exile hangover. You see, the, the, the people of Israel are, are back in the land when Jesus is saying this. They're back in the promised land and yet they do not possess the promised land. They are dispossessed in the land that they've been promised it's really odd that the Roman Empire is kind of ruling the roost at that moment. And so though they are there and they have a lot of agency, they still feel dispossessed from the land. It's as though they're still in exile. And in some sense, we, I think there's some resonance there for us. Like what we would say is things are not as they should be. I don't know if any of you have said that in the past two-ish years. Like this is just not how it should be. I've certainly said that. So though we're not first century Jews, there's some resonance with this feeling dislocated from the oughts and shoulds of, of, of like the grain of Jesus's life. Like we say things like, man, if Jesus, he exhibits love and life and liberty, like the true sense of liberty, not like the, the, the protection of my rights, but actually release into freedom. I'm so free, I can restrain myself. Where is that? See, this is, this is the brilliance of the Beatitudes is they actually hold a picture of the gospel for us, like the gospel in miniature, that it is this restoration of all creation is on offer and we get to participate with it. It's not just something that happens to us as though there's a calamity that befalls us and then, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? No, th there is a thing. And sometimes it is something that's done to us and sometimes it's something we participate in and sometimes nobody has any control of this reality and it's just a thing we're stuck in. And in the midst of that, Jesus' words, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, they still ring true. It's this restoration that's on offer. I appreciate how the novelist Frederick Buechner, he kind of helps us feel the texture of Jesus' words here, and he does this in a paraphrase. He says this, Blessing comes not to the champions of faith who can rejoice even in the midst of suffering, but the ones 
who mourn over their own suffering because they know that for the most part they've brought it down on themselves and over the suffering of others because that's just the way it makes them feel to be in the same room with them. I'm very aware about the like uh, teaching we did three weeks ago or something and made this emphatic point. The Beatitudes are not virtues. It, uh, being poor is not a virtue to be pursued. Uh, mourning is not a virtue to be pursued, and yet they explain reality. So how then, what's the connective tissue between what Jesus is declaring here and the life that we're in? Like if this isn't an imperative, like if this isn't a command of Jesus, like Kyle, pursue mourning because that's where my comfort will rest, which I'm much more comfortable with that, like Jesus just giving me a to-do list. What I'm less comfortable with is Jesus stringing this pearl and then reorienting his life to be among those who mourn. So as Jesus speaks this, it's like inviting me to also go to those who mourn, which makes me uncomfortable. That's the point, is that we would actually be together in the midst of this. See, this is part of the brilliance of the gospel, is that it actually, Jesus is with the mourners. Jesus is inviting them in. And yet it may not be in the way that we expect. Again, Eklund says it beautifully, comfort in the biblical sense is not a pat on the shoulder or a band-aid or a scraped knee, but it's apocalyptic. And she's using ap apocalyptic as, as it's what it means, the revealing. It's not like a catastrophe at the end of all things. It is a revealing. So comfort is this revealing. It is the remaking of the old age into a new age where there are no more tears. And we love the no more tears language. If, um, just by a show of hands, um, grow up in the church. You ever hear about no more tears? Yeah. Com coming in strong with the no more tears. Um, yes. This is one way that we spiritually bypass. Uh, spiritual bypassing is what... Uh, Psychologists, specifically Dr. Ingrid Clayton, describes as this. It's a defense mechanism. A spiritual bypass shields us from the truth. It disconnects us from our feelings and helps us to avoid the big picture. It is more about checking out than checking in. And the difference is so subtle that we usually don't even know that we're doing it. See, the, the vision of no more tears is beautiful. Like, I would dare say we ought to love that. And yet it can also be this place where we go... Well, there's going, to be, there's going to be a day when there are no more tears. And so we minimize, we shrink the discomfort of our, of our grief, whatever it may be. If it's something where you're like, I didn't get to celebrate my birthday with anybody. Or this extremely horrific thing happened, and where were the people that I wanted there? And we can be, well, <laughs> you know, there's no more tears in the new heavens and new earth, so I guess I'll just, we'll go there. Do, do you see how that actually dismisses the present, it robs us of that moment of healing. Clayton will, will kind of in shorthand describe this as grasping rather than gratitude. So in that explanation of like, well, the, the no more tears is coming, so I don't really have to worry about my problems now. It's grasping for comfort on our own terms. So we're there defining how I'm going to be comfortable. It's like we're rearranging our mental furniture so that we can sit down without an ache. And I think that this is where Jesus' words come to bear for us. See, it's, 
it's really easy to be comfortable. I'm really good at getting comfortable. <laughs> I have uh, like insoles in my boots, so it'd be more comfortable when I walk or stand. Like this is, and is that evil? No, I'm not trying to vilify it or, or, or like drum up guilt because the, the, the Christian church, they only, they only have guilt and, and the gospel of grace only, no, that's not, that's not the thing. It's just that that grasping, that uh, defining comfort on my own terms so I don't have to deal with the discomfort. That's what I want to attend to because there's this other option, what Clayton calls gratitude, that this place of an openness to receiving <laughs> That prayer that I prayed at the beginning of we, we welcome this stuff doesn't necessarily mean we like the stuff that's there, but rather we're, we're welcoming the spirit of the living God to be with us in the midst of it. Clayton goes on to talk about this whole spiritual bypassing, and she says this interesting thing. We can't outrun our own feet. We can't outthink our own brains. We can't override this human operating system that we live and breathe in every hour of every day, freeing ourselves of pain and problems. In other words, grasping is an option, but you won't outrun the pain because we will all encounter pain. But how we translate that pain, that has great significance. Jesus seems to be offering another way, something different than moralism or self-enlightenment or fatalism or secularism. Jesus seems to be offering an alternative way to translate our mourning. He describes it as the kingdom of heaven. If you just read through the Beatitudes, you can even jump there now if you want to, and you just start reading through it, it feels upside down. It's like all of the unblessable people are there in the midst of blessing. Yeah. But what we often do is what Dallas Wheeler describes like this. He says, we've fractured and misled and corrupted the meaning of blessed to suggest that when life is good, it means God is favoring us. And when life is hard, that we must be doing something wrong and God is punishing us. I don't think that that's true. And I also don't know. See, there, there are repercussions for choices that we make. I, there's choices that I've made that I can't unchoose. And I live with the consequences of those, and yet how I live with those is a different story. And, and the gospel actually invites me to be free from the narrative of shame, to then actually receive a new story, that I don't have to be defined by that story, but I can participate in a new one, where I can, I can participate in the generative love of the living God who's moving toward me and bringing healing and hope. See, this is what the Beatitudes invite us to. They invite us to attend to our pain as though our pain can actually be a place of healing and that the living God has an interest in helping us reframe in an appropriate way our pain. So it can be a place where we don't resist it any longer, but allow it to be a place where we are healed over a lifetime where we participate then in our pain with others who've experienced the same thing. And so to that end, I just want to offer this framework 
Because we could easily end right there and just say, okay, yeah, God joins us in our pain, and then we take communion, and we sing a couple songs, and maybe we go in, and we, we, later this week, we experience some sort of relational moment, and we're like, okay, God is with me. And that's beautiful. And that is a beautiful moment to pause and to take a breath and just receive that as a gift and say, Lord, I, I, yeah, I welcome this. But, but I, th- I thought maybe just some scaffolding around that. Because there's a lot riding on how we translate our mourning and suffering in general. And so just there, there's a few things that I would in- encourage us as a community to, be, to have our antenna up on or for when we're encountering some hardship. And, and this is isolation, anger, and temptation. So isolation, simply put, um, don't go it alone. <laughs> um, you, you don't need a, a, a pastor or practitioner up here saying that but I hope it feels redundant, but I hope it also feels fresh. Like, don't go it alone. Like, if you're in a season that feels particularly sticky, don't go it alone. Like, our, our pain has this knack for making us withdraw. That's that grasping. We, we move and rearrange our life so we think, okay, this is the safe spot. But it's there in that presumed safe spot that we're cut off from family and friends and life itself then lies start to come up. We say, like, I'm the only one experiencing this. I'm the only one who's in the midst of this. And those lies begin to sink in and they shape how we live and they just zap us of our energy. See, the, the truth is, and what we get to do here together, and we'll kind of give the counter example to isolation in a moment, but, like, you're not alone. Just look to your right or your left or behind you. Like this is evidence to us that we're not alone. And I know that you could jump on a social media feed and maybe you could feel that same thing of like, oh yeah, I'm not alone. I have a a virtual community. I wanna say like, that is a gift. Like here it is. (laughs) We embrace that as 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 a facet of life and are trying to learn how to engage in that component. But you're not alone in the midst of this. And I hope that doesn't feel trite because I want it to be true and I want to learn how to live like that's true because others have been here before us. And the second thing, anger. Um, this, this feels tricky because when circumstances come that feel out of our control, if you're anything like me, the, like the response can be anger. And sometimes it comes out of the side door. If you're like a, like a nine on the Enneagram, and if the Enneagram means nothing to you, I apologize. But if you're like a nine on the Enneagram, there's always a little bit of anger just right beneath the surface. I know this because my wife is an Enneagram. Jess is up there. And every once in a while, it just peaks. And that's called rage. And anger has this thing that unless we attend to it, it can... It can be what the scriptures describe as it can take root. And this is what I mean when I say that it's, it's tricky. Is that anger is also a good thing. Anger tells us that something was wrong. Anger can be the appropriate response to something that is unjust. And there's an invitation to say, watch out for how that anger, is that anger animating me? Is it leading to, to bitterness and opposition? And is it leading me to actually become an angry person? See, there's a difference between when we are animated by anger and when we feel angry. 
And when we give ourselves over to that anger, it really starts to shift how we relate to other people. We build up those walls and again, we are grasping. And so if you, you see that or you feel that, and if you don't know what anger feels like, um, maybe just ask some people who you know who are angry, like, hey, what's that feel like when you start to get angry? Or like go on the internet and Google, what does it feel like in your body when you get angry? <laughs> and then when those feelings come, go, oh, I think I'm getting angry. <laughs> what, what, can I, what can I do with that? Well, that in a moment. And perhaps the most important of all, at least as I'm seeing it in this time, and this will probably change by the afternoon, um, is temptation. I, I don't know how you feel. There's that little statement, halt, when you're um, hurting or hungry or angry or lonely or tired. Those, those moments, those spaces in your life when you are um, irritable or you're agitated, those are also when you're open simply open to sin, this redefinition of good and evil on your own terms. And it's stuff that you would normally be really easy to deal with when you're in those places, when you're hurting, are so challenging. It's like all of your defense mechanisms are down. And so that extra glass of whatever, that statement, that little zing of sarcasm, which you say, oh, I was just kidding, but you know you meant it. Like those little things start to chip away, not at your own humanity, but the people that you're around. And that mourning has, then this, it gets even deeper. So then, so if isolation is a thing to watch out and anger and temptation, what is the counter movement to that? Well, the obvious one with isolation is community. And again, the statement stands, don't go it alone. Like this is a place where you receive others into, you, into your pain where you're seen in it. And I'm not saying like you have to have your whole group or your whole like little group of friends. You have to disclose that to him. One person. Maybe that the only person right now is a therapist. That is a good thing. But like have someone there to see you in your pain and to be there with you. It doesn't mean they have to solve it, but to be there with you. And this can, this can be really challenging because it requires this both and movement. See, the temptation I feel is to like put the onus on the other person. Well, if they really would tell me, then I would respond to it. And that is such, that's like opting out of community. See, it goes both ways. Yes, we do, if you're hurting, we do want you to share, but we also need to cultivate, like build the muscle up to ask. So when we notice that you seem a little off, it's a statement of, hey, you seem a little like off. Am I, am I wrong about that? Is, like that's, a, that's an appropriate question and maybe it's received awkwardly, but the awkward moment might be better than somebody continuing to be isolated. And by the way, I don't say this as somebody who's got this together. I'm like figuring this stuff out. These are like tips that I'm receiving from you all and things to do better in, so uh, community. So the counter to anger, prayer. Um, I, this is a simply an invitation to lament. If you don't know that you can be angry at God, you totally can. Some people guess it's like upwards of like half of the Psalms are about people just who are angry. <laughs> you, are, you are in good company if that's how you feel. Allow the scriptures to give expression to that. It's, it's like this is a place of protest and questions and that place is prayer before the living God where you essentially share what is going on here so that God might join you in the midst of that. Because I think that what you'll find is that God's actually already waiting for you there in the midst of your pain. And the last place in the pace of temptation, I would, I would invite you to hope. 
that maybe there's been a sin pattern that you've been caught up in for a long while and you feel deeply rooted in that and it's like perpetuating the sadness. This is the church. Like we, we are actually a community who holds tightly to the God who conquered sin, Satan, and death. Are you kidding me? Like if there's a temptation, by the way, temptation is not sin. And so if you feel tempted and you feel guilt over your temptation, let me just say in Jesus's name, that is ridiculous that there's actually freedom in life. There is hope in the face of temptation. And by hope, I don't mean something flimsy and like, like just weak optimism. No, something grounded in the expectation of the good that will come because of the character of God. Because in the face of death, Jesus actually died to death. And in the power of God, Jesus was raised from death to life. This is the stubborn announcement we make week in and week out, that the resurrection is real, that we stand in the wake of it, and that is actually our sounding place of hope. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, and he strings that pearl, he is inviting us into a place of such deeply grounded hope that it ought to like, leave us in a place of wanting to respond. And so that's what we're gonna do now. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to contrive or emotionally manipulate or anything like that, but this is what we're going to do. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to take the bread and the cup as a place of like practical remembrance of actually taking in Jesus' body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, that, that the cross, that place of pain is actually a place of healing, not in an, as an abstraction, but as a reality, that this is what the living God does is he, he invites us to restoration. And so if, if you would, if you would join me in this.